I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and Sirius XM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and Sirius XM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the true crime review that looks at other podcasts, TV shows, and all things true crime. And this week, we're talking about the finale of HBO's The Case Against Adnan Syed and more. Joining me to get that done is true crime co-author and former TV journalist, host of These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast, and most important, my real-life husband, Kevin Flint. Hello, Kevin. Hey, Rebecca. I'm back. Because <laughs> I was never really gone. But, you know. You sound good. Thank you very much. You sound really good tonight. Thanks. Also with us is journalist, licensed private investigator, former defense investigator, certified cat lady, and small town Nancy Drew, Lara Bricker. <laughs> Hello, Lara. Hello, that's me. I'm solving mysteries everywhere, Rebecca, but we'll talk about it. <laughs> and finally, it's our captain of woke cynicism, acclaimed noir novelist, resident skeptic, and our Patreon book club commander, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. What's up, dog? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I just have a couple things to say before we start the show. Right now on our Patreon podcast feed, we have the CWO After Show. We'll be talking more about some of our candid thoughts of the case against Anand Sayed that we won't Mm -hmm. cover in this podcast. We'll also be talking more about the Curtis Flowers case and some rage-inducing sexism experienced by Laura Bricker this week having to do with an auto mechanic, apparently, what? is also oh, going to okay. be in the after yeah. show. Oh, just you wait. I'm super right. excited about that. Of course, you can get that all at patreon.com slash partners in crime media, or just click the handy link in the show notes and sign up to listen. You can also get the latest episode of Toby's Book Club on the Real Lolita that is up and an amazing new podcast by Laura Bricker, which we have to talk about really quick. Because, Laura, you had this idea that for, like, our $6 Patreon level, you'd make, like, a little thing for your wage-walking group. Yeah. And I think it's, honestly, I think it's the best thing we make. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Well, that's awesome. Uh, I don't know about that, but uh, you know what? It's my real life. Toby. But Laura bought a recorder and just literally recorded herself doing some shit in Exeter, New Hampshire. 
And you, Kevin, can attest, you cried with laughter when you heard it. Toby, I, I didn't want to, but <laughs> it was just so Laura. It's all good. Uh, oh. It's all good. It's mainlining Laura Bricker is what it is. We are mainlining Laura Bricker. Oh, God. Well, get ready because it's going to get... I have so many ideas now because, oh. I mean, this is my life. Honestly, like my poor family, I mean, every day I have something that I'm like, what's going on down there? Hmm, I'm going to have to go see about that. So um, I have lots of things to look into, like why my neighbor Dan has 50 Christmas trees out behind his house. (laughs) Um, I was going to go today, but I couldn't get down his driveway because he had cut a tree down. So um, stay tuned. Yeah, there's a lot going on in my little town. Can I just play like- You can play a clip. A tiny clip because there's one moment- in uh, Laura Bricker's Brichter Scale podcast, where there's the most incredible Foley that people wait forever in their lives as radio reporters to get, and they never get when they go down to the basement of the Exeter Historical Society and they open like a huge creaky door. All right. Speaking of crime, did you listen to In the Dark today, Barbara? I did. I did. Are you feeling... Oh, now we're going into a... Oh, my Lord. We're going into a big, heavy door here in the basement of the Historical Society. This is where history comes to die or live, yeah, I guess. It is, it this is, is where history lives. Most of it really happened like that. Oh my god! <laughs> I wish I had taken a picture of the door, you guys, because it was like this <laughs> this big black, like heavy metal door, and I'm like, holy shit! What are go. we doing? I would just say that what Laura finds and then discusses about flaming bird poop yes. is worth the extra dollar <laughs> no. to get this to my, get to the $6 level. My favorite takeaway from this whole Laura Bricker Brick to Scale podcast so far is that Laura Bricker, wife of a fire chief, discusses why fires are fun because everyone comes out to watch them. <laughs> it's a, it's such an I didn't say that. Somebody else said that. I may have agreed, but I didn't it, say though. it. <laughs> oh, I was there. It was fun. A small town fire is fun because you know why? Everyone's there watching. Oh, God. Anyway, check it out. It's the Brichter Scale podcast. You can get that for the uh, very, very expensive $6 level. <laughs> the champagne room of Patreon. <laughs> I mean, for a hundred bucks a month, you can name our studio, but for six dollars, you can hear Lara go to a basement and find a <laughs> box full of raccoon poop. It's pretty incredible. <laughs> yep. All right. No, no offense, Kevin. No it's offense, all, Toby. It's all one episode, too. We have a whole like CWO after show that we're doing. That's just an extension of this show that I thought would be the real loss leader for this thing. Lara yeah. Bricker coming through. <laughs> <laughs> well, just stay tuned. All right. All right, Kevin, before we get into our review tonight, can you please read this for me? <clears throat> True, True Crime, Crime Podcast, Podcast Update. Well, I'm really testing out those post-surgery pipes, aren't I'm, you, Kevin? I'm working all right. <laughs> You're doing a great I'm working job. Working all right. So we are going to cover this more in our Patreon Crime Writers on After Show. But I just wanted to get a read on the room uh, before we talk about the main event of the evening. Curtis Flowers, the likely wrongfully convicted man whose case is at the center of In the Dark Season 2, his appeal was heard by the U.S. Supreme Court 
in the times we recorded. Uh, I happened to go down to the court because I was in D.C. for an event, and I talked to some people outside, including some of the In the you Dark team. You completely forgot that was going on when you were in Washington. I 100% forgot. You were there for a completely different reason. I was there for a different reason. I was sitting in a restaurant, and I saw a dude walk by my restaurant with a free Curtis Flower sign, and I was like, oh, yeah, that thing is happening. <laughs> so I took an Uber down to the Supreme Court, talked to people, met um, Natalie Jablonski and Will Kraft from the In the Dark team. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ma- Madeline was already inside the building. We had plans to like meet for coffee at the airport the next day. We were in different terminals. Was she live tweeting from inside the Supreme no, Court? No, but she tweeted. She made notes in there, gotcha. and she immediately tweeted afterwards. Gotcha, okay. And here's the read on the room I wanted to get from you guys. I'm assuming you've all either read the actual transcript or listened to it or read articles about it. Mm-hmm. Kevin, what did you think about the questions the court asked? Oh, I have asked? so many thoughts. Okay, go ahead. I have so many thoughts. I mean, just baseline, I, I think that Curtis Flower wins... Five four, maybe even six three, mm. because I think I think Roberts. I mean, I think you got your, your your block of four liberals that are probably going to go his way. Sotomayor was super dubious yeah. of the state, and you know, it's like it, it takes. I don't know, is it two or three justices, Laura? Do you know to grant cert? At the Supreme Court, justices I'm have to sure. they, at least at least two. It might they have to be fired up. They have to like they'll see the case, and this is why they reject so many. Like if it's it's got to stir something in them, and it certainly seemed to me. I would bet money that Sotomayor was among those that granted cert because she wanted she had something to say. I wouldn't about be surprised if Brett Kavanaugh also did because Brett right Brett Kavanaugh is a surprise because like honestly like we know a lot about Brett Kavanaugh. Listen. We don't know a lot about his jurors his jurisprudence on the. Supreme Court because it's a small sample. He had written, and this I think Madeline brought this up. He had written a law paper about Batson. He feels very strong. He was about fired Batson. up about he this, was. and I I think he is definitely a vote for for Curtis Flowers. So I mean I think there's your five right there. I think Roberts. It could even be Alito also could be. He's not. He doesn't usually go with, you know, the criminal defendant. But he had some really. I mean, he said the he was the first comment. He said the history of this case is very troubling. Yeah, even the state attorney general from Mississippi said the history it's, of the case was troubling. It's One of the best moments of the whole thing was when um, uh, Clarence, Clarence Thomas, Thomas mouth. loves discrimination. <laughs> For the first time in three years? By the way, Clarence Thomas asked his first question in three years, and he loves discrimination. Let's just be real. He seems to love discrimination based on the, his opinions and the questions he asks. Okay. Uh, or I mean, least, he loves discrimination. Well, he loves that there is discrimination? He likes, he, he is anti-things that favor minorities. That's sort of all, all of his opinions mm. are about, which is like an interesting place for Clarence Thomas I'll to be. I'll have after show thoughts about that. But- his question was, because of course he asked like the very like expected question of like, not from him, but expected of how many white jurors did Curtis Flowers' lawyer strike? And it was like, there were no- Sotomayor says this. Sotomayor said, well, there said, were only white- They knocked white... off all the black jurors, <laughs> there no so there's only white ones left. Strike. So, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, Laura, what did you think about what you heard and read about the SCOTUS Flowers appearance? I was, um, you know what, with all the shitty news we've had about criminal justice and cases where we think things are going to go a certain way, I was so- hopeful after hearing this, but I was so surprised. Like, Kavanaugh, I was like, whoa, where did that come from? I know. From? We're supposed to hate um, him, and yet he was just, I know. like, really on it. I just felt like things are fine. I mean, I don't want to jinx it, but it, it was it was um, pretty amazing to listen to and to see that it was, like, not just one of the justices, but they all were just like, um, why didn't the state take this case yes. away from this guy? Oh, oh, because he would have had to ask. I'm like, 
but at what point does somebody say, yeah, no, we're just going to take this case away from him? So I certainly hope that when this case is heard again, which it shouldn't be heard again, it should just be done at this point. But if it is that that somebody, you know, says, hey, you know what, the highest court in the land was kind of surprised we're letting this guy continue to try this case, like, we should take a stand here. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> the AG has been put in an awkward position having argued this case if he doesn't then take the case over. Mm-hmm. Toby, do you have any thoughts about uh, the Curtis Flowers Appeals Supreme Court appearance? I don't have a ton of thoughts. Like, I, I kind of skimmed through stuff. I listened to uh, uh, one of the In in the Dark, like, supplemental uh, episodes, which I thought was really, really good. And uh, the sort of Supreme Court expert that Madeline talks to said that he felt very confident that they were going to uh, rule for Curtis Flowers. It, it seems like everything kind of points towards that happening, which is good. I think the other thing that kind of stood out to me, and I think it came up in that podcast as well, was that like one of the ways that Mississippi tried to kind of defend the practices was that they weren't unusual for Mississippi. And I was like, you know, that is, I'm not sure that says what you think it is mm, saying. Yeah. Again, I, I feel this way about a lot of these things. It's like, I think it's, it will be great if Curtis Flowers is set free, but it also kind of feels like if Madeline and her team hadn't found him, his case and gone down there and made this incredible podcast about it, you know, where would he be? You know, I don't. I don't think it would be argued in front of the Supreme Court. So then, you know, it, you, you just got so many other people. It's, it's weird to say it's an advantage because he's on death row, but the, the, because because the spotlight's not sh- shown on them, you know, they're not going to have the ability to fight these things in the way that Curtis Flowers and Adon and you know Stephen Avery, you know, and so on, who who, who get, you know, and I think rightfully so. Get a get a closer examination than than an ordinary prisoner would. Yeah, no, I agree with you, and I think that we should say it is very rare in our industry in true crime podcasting, where actually the podcast made a difference in the case, and you can make that case with Serial that you know, although the stuff we're going to talk about tonight mm-hmm. shows that Serial didn't look at stuff, that it raised the profile of it, but this is so directly. The work that team did, Will Craft specifically, the data reporter, who is one of the people I met outside uh, the court, the courthouse that day, their work directly made it into an argument that was in front of the Supreme Court, which is here are the numbers on this guy. So it's 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 amazing. It's very good for our industry and true crime podcasting and great journalism. Journalism matters. So we're going to talk in the CWO After Show about some more candid thoughts about this. And then next week on our podcast, we're going to talk about In the Dark's update episodes. And we're also going to be talking about the very controversial, I'm only saying that because our listeners say so, I haven't actually heard it, a very popular podcast to live and die in L.A. That's what we're going to be talking about next week on this show. So, Who did that song, Toby, in the 80s? Uh, Wang Chung, I Wang believe. Chung. That's it. Yep. I think you're right. Everybody no. have podcast tonight. Everybody have podcast tonight. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Moving on. Should we get to our main event of the evening? Let's do it. The finale of HBO's four-part documentary, The Case Against Anand Syed, has dropped in the much-anticipated final episode, 
We are taken through the events of Syed's case as it worked through the appeals process, given some insight into the personal pressures faced by his family and told in no uncertain terms that when it comes to cases like this one, a positive outcome is very far from certain. It's tough out there, you know. These cases are just so fucking hard to win. But we also get some bombshells, although it's not clear if the filmmakers know we know that or maybe even if they're bombshells or not. So we're going to talk about all of it right now. So let's just go through the episode in order and break it down point by point. Are you guys game for that? It's what we get paid to do. All right. So this episode begins in the lead up to the Court of Special Appeals hearing, the one where Judge Welch's ruling granting Anansi at a new trial was being contested by the state. Anand's lawyer, Justin Brown, breaks down all the law stuff for us. But Rabia points out that the news cycle, a.k.a. Trump getting elected and the Russia investigation, has sucked much of the media attention away from this case. Now, Kevin, I don't think this is something that we think about when it comes to, like, uh, people crusading on behalf of, you know, wrongfully convicted people or victims. Can you just talk a little bit about, like, news cycle and how that can affect a story like this? Because I know that you used to work as a well, TV reporter and you know that stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, there is really only so much space. And sometimes that means that smaller stories get inf- inflated so that, you know, you can fill the 24 hours, you can fill the front page. And there are other times where there's just so much going on that the news gods have taken away all the space. I'd say, generally speaking, in Baltimore, that, you know, Adnan Syed is probably on the local page and the president is on the national page. But, you know, I think there was a good parallel there. Maybe not so much sort of as, as in, you know, how much ink everybody's getting, but the increased antipathy towards American Muslims is on display, you know, at this time where you have probably the most famous American Muslim convict who is prevailing at his quest for a wrongful conviction exoneration. Yeah. You know, like it's like those two things. It's you know, it's like society's they didn't say that, work. But you right. see it, no, but right? you can, yeah, you can yeah. kind of say, oh, it's society, right? It's kind of working against right. a guy in that situation, right? And I did think it was, you know, in a moment of restraint, the filmmakers didn't show all the sort of like anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant stuff that was happening at yeah. the same time. But like, because it's at important, Rabia, but it isn't. The, you know, right. it it is, but it it isn't in, in the courtroom. It's just yeah. like it's similar to what we talked about for episode three. Like Rabia wears a headscarf, and Adnan is Muslim, and has a beard and his family is Muslim and like the idea that you'd be able to bring this this story to the front page competing with like I get it I totally get it I get what she was saying about it but let's move to um, the thing that's sort of the kernel of this episode that sets up sort of the emotional core of it which I know we don't all feel the same way about we see Rabia and Adnan's mom Auntie Shamim at Rabia's house and by the way Super baby cute, man. baby Yasina alert. Oh my God, he looks the same. Yes, as you know, we've know. met not really that anybody does. else. Well, shut up, Toby. <laughs> we've met this baby many times, Kevin. Yeah, we have. I don't Can think, we yeah. not confirm that even when he he's, was he's when he was an infant, yeah. and he had, like as a one year old and a two year old, he is the cutest baby, yeah. that has ever like lived on the planet Earth. Period. Yeah, some babies makes, do their looks do change. Yes, but his. Is has and he's, anyway, he's super adorable. So this is our first baby yeah. Yasin alert, which is very exciting <laughs> for me. Anyway, other than the episodes where she was I don't pregnant, know. Mr. Beans was pretty exciting too. Mr. But Beans is exciting. Yeah. is pretty exciting yeah, right, too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, Adnan's mom, they're they're apparently meeting at uh, Rabia's house to get ready to go to court, 
And Anand's mom reveals that she's been keeping a secret from Anand that she was recently diagnosed with leukemia. Go on, D. What happened? You want to go to the other room? Huh? I have leukemia. What? I'm sorry. What are you saying? Can we just cut this for a bit? Wait, it's all written. No, I, I don't. Uh, I to come to the other room. No, no, it's all right. Just don't. So I'll be fine. By the way, I think we should make it clear. Obviously, Shamim was comfortable with them filming, but it was the filmmaker's choice to leave that in. It wasn't like, Mm -hmm. it wasn't Adnan saying, please put my mom's leukemia scene in the documentary, right? Yeah. He doesn't have a wife that'll do that on her podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Kevin. Wow. Nice tie. Um, Yeah, you know what? I guess my reaction to it was this it, again like humanizes the experience of what it's like for a family when they have a family member incarcerated and how a family has to cope with uh, things that happen when somebody's in jail or prison and in this case it's like how do you handle a diagnosis like that when you know that the other person is in prison isn't really going to be able to you know do anything you know, and might feel helpless uh, knowing about it. So for me, what was really interesting about it was just the parallel between Adnan's uh, changing a sort of thought process about what it was like to be incarcerated and and his thoughts about how that was. I mean, that was just like, yeah. I mean, they couldn't have planned that. I mean, it was like the parallels between him comparing this to being like somebody that's been given a terminal diagnosis in terms of his sentence in prison and then you know, his mother actually having a cancer diagnosis and him talking about his mother as he's talking about his sort of thoughts about this not knowing. I think for me, that was, that really made an impact. I can name like five people that I know who got their cases overturned. They were retried and they were convicted. It's almost like I just got approved for chemotherapy. Chemotherapy, it ravages the body. It doesn't mean it's going to cure you. I know people who've had terminal illnesses, like since I've been in prison. That's the only thing I can ever equate it to. To talk to someone when they first have a terminal illness, it's like, man, I'm going to beat it. You know, I'm going to beat it. And then eventually it comes to a point where it's like, man, you know what? I'm not going to beat it. It's going to beat me. See, I agree with Laura that that is like the emotional beat that 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 creates. We've seen this theme in in the dark, in the in the staircase, in uh, making a murderer about you know the people outside. If he hadn't said, made that analogy that being in prison is like having a terminal illness. I, yes, and you have a chance for chemotherapy and sort of the perceived futility of that. It wouldn't have been the same. Um, and would they have included it if he never said that? Yeah, probably because, I mean, these are the things we kind of want from documentaries. But I think that's what made it powerful. It was sad to see her, you know, have to sort of explain that and, you know, and Robbie's reaction. But when it comes down to it and like you hear it in the context again, he's talking about it, but he doesn't realize he's also talking about his mother. That was powerful. So there is a, it's a line there. The filmmakers made a choice. And I think that we can all sort of like walk on either yeah. side of the choice, but it is the choice they made. So let's move on. it became a continuing plot point. So I think it was okay. That's right. So let's, let's move on because the filmmakers do reveal in this episode that they have some tricks up their sleeve. One, they talk to Jay. In January of 2019, actually, Jay just a couple of months ago, 
Jay tells the filmmakers a whole new story, including that the cops are the ones who suggested the whole Best Buy plot line about that's where the trunk pop happened or whatever, that Adnan had asked him while in high school for 10 pounds of marijuana. marijuana. Now, I don't know how much marijuana you have all smoked. But I can just tell you from looking at pictures of one ounce of marijuana, I get photos. <laughs> That's a lot. 10 pounds is a lot of marijuana. Yeah. And that Adnan was holding that 10-pound uh, marijuana purchase over his head and that Jay then didn't help Barry Hay. So we don't hear from Jay directly, but the filmmakers tell us what they heard from Jay, which both contradicts his stuff at the, at the original time of the prosecution, also contradicts some of his stuff at The Intercept interview is a kind of a news story. Laura, what are you thinking about Jay at this point when we hear the filmmakers have reached out to him? Well, I mean, he just changes his story every time he talks to somebody new. When when somebody, you know, people are, you know, trying to talk to him, he he avoids them and then he talks and then it's a completely different story. Like it was a completely different story when he talked to his girlfriend. Now it's this 10 pounds of marijuana. And I'm thinking like you, I'm like, that's a lot of like weed. Normal high school kids are not getting that much. I mean, it just didn't add up to me. But I was thinking, oh, you know, what does sound like it could make sense is Jay got busted with that much. And the cops are like, hey, uh, you know, this is what we have on you. Can you help us out with anything? Not necessarily telling him what to say, but I mean, cops do that. They're like, hey, if you have information about something else that we're interested in, you know, it might be like we might help you out kind of situation. But the fact that they did talk to him and so close to this coming out, yeah. I thought was really interesting. Yes. Um, and, and I should say, full disclosure, uh, there's an excellent chance that by the time this episode drops, this part four of the documentary has been edited again. So some of the things that you, fair listener, watched last night might be different <laughs> from the things that we right. watched the week up before right. that. We're not even allowed to talk about the fact that we've seen it at this point. We got it about a week in advance. We know they're but still we working did. on it. Yeah. It's like the Mueller report. Yes. Oh, my God. We can't tell anyone what we've seen. We, we, we know they're still working on it because some of the font that came up in the title cards was just like Arial font. It wasn't yeah. even like HBO, like fancy font. So we know that there might be more. So just that way, I should probably make that disclaimer now, right? If we sound stupid about something, it's because they didn't have it there before. <laughs> Cell towers. <laughs> Lens crafter. Christina Gutierrez is Godzilla? What? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Toby, you can just attest, if nothing else, that 10 pounds of marijuana is a tremendous amount of marijuana. What do you yes ask Toby? No? It's going to fill your trunk. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's just, it's a lot of money. Like, it, I mean, that's, you yeah. know, it's, it's clearly to be dealt. So you're either like, Adnan wants to deal a lot of pot or. Jay's bullshitting. That's right. So, how do you front that? Like credit? <laughs> I don't know. All right. So, enter uh, our favorite characters in the documentary, or at least some of my favorite characters, the crafty New York PIs who like to do mm-hmm. detecting on trains. Mm-hmm. They circle back to plant dude, Eric Irvin, turf physiologist. Now, Kevin, we uh, talked. Uh, last week and the week before about how they threw all these things up in the air and they had to land the plane on them in this fourth episode. They do go to see Eric Irvin in his greenhouse lab situation <laughs> that he has in his education. college. Yeah. And we get a little bit of a half measure result. 
the results on whether or not the grass could have turned brown in the period of time of, of eight weeks or whatever were inconclusive. But he does say the green blades of grass on Heyman Lee's car's tires have him putting the car in that spot behind those row houses for no longer than one day to one week before those photos were taken. Was it a disappointing result or were you satisfied with that? Is that what that was? Yes. I'm just going to go off on sort of a tangent here for a second. I think that there was some really interesting findings here, but I think like the documentarians understated them so much yes. that we, even us who know <laughs> yeah. all this stuff, who've watched it multiple missed times. it and yes. did not realize the importance of it. That's right. Yes. I Kevin, would second that, Kevin. I've yeah. had multiple arguments on the phone in the last 48 hours. <laughs> <laughs> with Laura Bricker uh-huh. yes. and Patrick Hines and yeah. other people about okay. what we actually saw in this documentary. This makes me feel better, okay, yeah. because I was like, how did I miss that? I'm like, because they didn't quite tie it together the way that I was expecting. See, here's what I got out of There's like There's no Colin that... Miller telling us yes, right. what it means. He, guys, this is what I got out of like the important thing of this whole sort of narrative trail. Maybe the car was moved, maybe it wasn't. I've always had problem like wondering what the logic of doing that was. Like, is that part right. of a conspiracy? Why is that better than whatever? If you want to say, well, maybe the killer had stashed the car someplace else and they wanted to move it, okay, whatever. The question always was, and sort of the f- defining moment of serial was, hey, Jay knew where the car was. Mm. Okay, so what did we find out? The neighbor said, I've been here for a billion years. 40 years. 40 years. If somebody parks their car there, it couldn't be there for six weeks because we always call the cops. So one, that tells you, okay, couldn't have been there for six weeks Correct. without the cops coming. But we're saying, well, how, the, how did the cops know the car was there? Because Wait the a neighbor minute. called it in. Because the neighbor called it in. Right. That's how they knew the car Probably, was there. Yeah. Probably knew how the car was there. That was not underlined at all. No. We're go back and think later about that. You go, have to oh. put it together yourself. Yeah. So if it was recently moved there, sure, someone would have called. It wasn't like it was sat there for six weeks and then somebody called. Correct. If it was recently moved by whomever, right. for whatever reason, which doesn't quite seem to like almost, you know, doesn't quite, with, into any of the scenarios, matter. murder scenarios, right. it was like, how could the police know it was there in order to tell Jay? Well, somebody called it in really recently. Okay, I'm just going to go on a limb and give you guys my opinion right now. Yeah. I think the car is a red herring. Could I be. think the yeah. fingerprints on the mirror of the car are a red herring. I think that if somebody killed Hay, whether it was in her car or not, they may have killed her in her car. They may have intercepted her at some other location. Mm-hmm. She may have been killed in a hotel room having sex with somebody. She may have been killed in many scenarios. That's not a joke. I mean, it's just true. Sure. We don't know how and where she was killed because later in this episode, as we'll get to the M.E., kind of cast doubt on the fact that she may have been killed in a car with just like the medical evidence. Mm -hmm. So she could have been killed under any number of circumstances. And if you imagine that her killer then disposed of her body in a park, they may have just disposed of the car and just left it somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. They may have left it in a park and ride. They may have left it in an airport parking lot. They may have left it anywhere. And then somebody could have stolen the car and then moved it to a place where they... You know what I mean? It's another that car, possibility. That car was not probably not moved by the cops who were like in conspiracy. That car was probably moved by somebody 
who drove the car after finding it somewhere or whatever. There's a million ways the car could have gotten there. And the mirror fingerprints, yeah, they could have been left by the killer, but they also could have left by a guy who found a car with the keys in it in a whole other location, drove it for two weeks, and then parked it in that row house you know, he may have been a neighbor who lived there. You don't know. Right. Because if I killed somebody, I would want to find a way to get rid of their That's car. That's right. So and I think they could. You know. But you think about how the car got in the frame. The car got into the frame because Jay claims he saw Hay's body in the trunk of a car. And Hay, and Jay claims Adnan told him he killed Hay in the car. And if we think that Jay is lying about this whole story because he was a professional informant, then let's just take the car out of the fucking frame. Hay was murdered, maybe in her car, maybe not, and the car was moved at some point by somebody. Like, I think it's a red herring. I See, really do. Uh, I, I just kind of... So I, I kind of feel like we're getting into the territory of making a murderer season two, mm-hmm. where it's just like cars are moving, but nobody knows who moved them, and maybe it's important and maybe it's not. And it's... The more we talk about it, it seems like there's there's like more and more like maybe this didn't happen this way. Maybe somebody just stole the car and moved it. I mean, it's hard to understand what was going on there anyway. But it's like just for this particular case, like that particular car got stolen from where it was. Yes. Like ditched. I say yes, because in Baltimore, they, cars got stolen all the time from where they were ditched. Yeah, and by the way, that's why I think it's a red herring. Well, I think you can just that's what you I can think. just agree on that the car. The car was moved. Yes. And that the car wasn't sitting there all that time. And like we can all agree upon that. I mean, I think that that just undercuts a lot of things that were said. If we agree that Jay's story probably isn't true, then the car is a red herring, period. Like that's right. what it comes down to. I will to. fault the documentarians for spending so much time Correct. on let's show them digging up the grass and Correct. all that other stuff because they have way better stuff on other narrative threads here right and maybe they don't also fill in the gaps on those and tell us why that they're important right so one of the things that happened in episode three that toby pointed out as probably being the biggest bombshell we've heard so far is that krista vinson is confronted with the possibility that she got the date wrong Right. right right so we sort of talked about that being a big deal and we talked about why it was a big deal on our show i will tell our audience now so i as you know produce undisclosed Colin Miller does an amazing explanation on the episode of Undisclosed that came out last week on why this matters. What this now tells us is this entire visit is on a different day. That means, A, Christie is completely irrelevant to January 13th, and we have to wonder how was it planted in her head by the police or someone else that this took place on the 13th. Jen, again, is probably remembering the same day as Christy, which means... Yeah, it makes Jen irrelevant, too. It's not just... It's not, it's not Christy's irrelevant. It's Jen also Jen. Jen is gone as corroboration. That day that she is claiming the shovels and Jay telling her about the murder, that's not this day. That's some other day. And so then she's just completely gone as corroboration. And then you have Jay. I mean, his entire story starting at 4.12 p.m., is clearly a construction of the police based upon the cell tower pings, and none of that stuff happened on January 13th. And that just leaves you with nothing. There's there's no evidence. The pings are irrelevant. Jen is irrelevant. Christie's irrelevant. Jay's entire story is nonsense from another day. There's just nothing left. Kevin, remember you said that Jen, her memory that Jay told her about Adnan's killing Hay on the day of the murder is for you one of the most troubling pieces of evidence? Yes. What is that corroborated by? 
It's corroborated it's, by right. Krista Vinson's memory of them being together. On a day which Krista thought was Wednesday, but now Krista doesn't believe is Wednesday. Correct. And they came up with that date. Everyone originally came up with the, the date because the cops told, told them. them it was that date. And Krista is only in the frame because right. the faulty cell tower maps put her in the frame. She wouldn't have been a part of the story if not right. for that. So the bottom line is like... Let's give Jen like all of the props. Let's say that Jen is remembering the thing that happened to her. Jen is not remembering it from January 13th, 1999. She's remembering Jay telling her on a different day. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and Sirius XM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and Sirius XM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. And internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement. While another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Moving on. Back to the case against Adnan Syed, part four. Now, there is this weird pivot in the middle of this episode of the documentary. Around the, right before the halfway point, we sort of pivot from uh, crime to politics Thiru Vignaraja, the volunteer prosecutor in Anand's case, is running for office, as it turns out. And uh, Justin finds this troubling, Justin Brown, Anand's lawyer, in light of what the, we later learn about uh, his negotiations with the state. It makes sense. Uh-huh. I think that he finds that troubling. But we also hear in this surprising interview from a woman named Sarah Dill. Theru's former campaign manager, who apparently isn't afraid to say what we're all thinking. She's kind of like the Lara Bricker of this episode. <laughs> the no filter lady. He's he's very good about presenting a public persona. I'm going to do a lot of things very differently than we've done in, them in the past. We're not going to pursue policies of mass incarceration or zero tolerance. We're not going to rely on life without parole for juveniles. If you're going to run as a progressive prosecutor, taking on a case where you have someone who is tried as a juvenile to say... No, this conviction has to stand without any just concrete hard evidence, I think is troubling. I hate that guy. <laughs> you know, I just have to say, when I know we've known about him, we've talked about him, when we've listened to you know, you know, the podcast and when we've we've read news stories, but seeing him in person, um, and just how like 
how like he was so smarmy about everything. I just was like, oh, just really obnoxious. And, and again, I don't know why it didn't hit me as much before, just how completely out of line it was that he was acting as a pro bono prosecutor. Like, what the hell is that? I mean, I know times are tough in the Baltimore like area with like the heavy caseloads for the prosecutors, but that is ridiculous. So I was so happy when Sarah came on and she was just, you know, she was so honest and she was talking about how he was you know, running as a progressive and how, you know, his stance on this case was pretty troubling because it just really didn't line up with what he was saying. And then when he was like, when they said, why aren't you testing the DNA? And he was just like, well, it's not my job or something. I'm like, what? Oh my God, I hate this guy. So um, (laughs) I I felt, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that takes more significance later as we know what the state was actually doing. Theorer was really working. It almost seems like, granted, I'm not inside baseball here. We only know what we saw in the documentary, but it seems like Justin had its direct line to the attorney general's office of the state of Maryland. And Thiru Vignaraja has his own sort of separate public agenda around the case that to me seems out of step with what the state is doing behind the scenes. I could be wrong. That's how it seemed to me. And the reason why it surprised me that Sarah Dill, his former campaign manager, went on camera is... You know, Kevin, we know how like political operatives work, like you work for one person and then you work for a hundred other people. Mm-hmm. Like, do you want to be the campaign manager who went on camera for HBO talking shit about your candidate unless it's like there's a reason you would do that? Yeah. It doesn't seem like something who's like a career political operative would do. So I don't know. It, it struck me as interesting, although maybe not super helpful for this documentary, because I will say I do think this episode spent way too much time on the politics and the election and way too little time explaining why the revelations mattered. So yeah. Yes. The theory thing, just that whole bit, I was just thinking Moby Dick. Mm. Like, Ed nods his white whale. He was a dick? Is that what you said? Oh, okay. <laughs> Is he, yeah. Well, that was I, my kind of read. I don't mm. disagree with you. He's also uh, a guy who went to Woodlawn High School. You could imagine. He was like, he's like the Clarence Thomas of this case. He's like the... <laughs> yeah. This kid could have been me, and therefore I must oppress him, kind of. Like, it's weird. Yeah. It's really weird. It, but it puts a lot of weight on, like, how much is Thero Vignaraja the reason that Anand Syed is still in, you know? It's I think like, he has an outsized role, but it's, it's a real role. Yeah, I mean, it is a real role. But, you know, it just means if, if he weren't the one arguing the appellate case, it would be another, you know, another attorney. Right. Right? I mean, this guy's, you know, it's it's odd because of who he is. You know, not actually. And he's running for office. And he's running for and office and all that paid. other stuff. But it isn't like he, like he alone, could just say, you know what, I'm not going to do this. I mean, that seems unlikely. But the state attorney general, right, Brian Frosch, this was really interesting. It was, but we do get this whole weird, and let's just like just say it, too long election night sequence. Yeah, we know the outcome. Yeah, Ivan Bates, who we've seen as a, a source on the show, is running. And he said he would drop the charges. And there's all this hopefulness that uh, Marilyn Mosby won't win. And of course, that doesn't happen. And it's that not takes even up close. no. And that takes up a full like few minutes. And then here comes the procedural stuff. The second half of the episode, which is when all the good procedural stuff goes down. Justin Brown, Nan's lawyer, explains that. There is a new trial pending, which is poignant because we know as viewers that this new ruling means there isn't. But he's decided to play offense. He explains why Adnan's side has never requested DNA testing 
Uh, something the state, by the way, did not do in the initial prosecution. There's DNA in fingernail clippings, rope found near the body, swabs taken from Hay, items from her car. There's the two mirror fingerprints. The assertion that, like, the defense wouldn't want to do that proactively, did that make sense to you, Kevin? Because I'll tell you, there has been this, like, big argument online, especially in the crazy Reddit communities, about, like, if you're innocent, you just want them to test for DNA. Okay, first of all, you got to remember... Christina Gutierrez. Mm -hmm. But, you know, actually, technically, there is a reason that I can think of for why you wouldn't do this and why you would wait to do this now. If Christina Gutierrez didn't push for the DNA testing at the time, it could be because, technically speaking, it's highly likely that there would be some right. f- some uh, yeah, DNA absolutely. from Adnan in that car. That's what Justin Brown says. So if you find, you know, so then it ends up just look, he just ends up looking guilty because they find a Snickers bar that he ate a month ago. You, you know what I'm saying, right? Totally. Okay, so if you know that there are th- things that are untested now, including things like rope and fingernails, which probably has some really damning evidence of, you know, whoever the perpetrator is, why would you not test that and prove it non-innocence? It has to do with when in this process this stuff becomes clear. Correct. Because if it is discovered during the appeals process, the evidence is considered differently than if it isn't when it can be introduced on another track as newly found evidence a for trial. a completely in a trial or for a, or a completely different appeal. Correct. So if they went in the middle of this previous appeal and they want to submit this as new evidence, it gets pulled into this whole other They can't do that. Pro- they can't do that. It's a whole new appeal. It's an actual innocence so it, claim or something. Right. So while yeah. the optics of it are like, well, why won't you do it? It's it's about the timing and where it falls in the legal process, which isn't made clear in the So document. it makes sense. No, no but it, I, I mean, agree. They don't make it again. Justin says it, but we're not walking away thinking, oh, I get Lara, so we then get um, back to my favorite characters in the documentary, the PIs. Yep. Sorry, Susan yep. Simpson, you're pretty great, too. And so are you, Baby Yassine, also my favorite. I love the PI guys, though. But the PI guys are great just because they, like, don't you shave. find out they've been working on it for three years, which is really cool. They wear skinny pants yeah. and they don't shave. And they look like like mm-hmm. cast members of Westworld and they're yeah, like exactly. super white yeah. offices. <laughs> anyway, mm-hmm. Laura, they talked to uh, Jan Gorniak, a forensic pathologist yeah. and the chief medical examiner for Atlanta. Yeah. And basically, she does an analysis of, you know, the autopsy photos and the autopsy results Mm-hmm. That completely, again, the documentary doesn't say this in so many yeah. words, completely debunks any possibility that Jay Wilde's version of this story could be true. Heyman Lee, after she was murdered, was lying on her stomach for yeah. 8 to 10 hours. Why isn't there more of like a... Signpost? Moment? Yes. Well, I mean, first of all... You know, the theory that she was killed in the car, you know, the first thing that Jan said was that she didn't see any signs of struggle in the car and that the death occurred there based on the type of injuries there were on Hay and and the situation in the car. So I thought, but again, had I not been taking notes, I, I would have perhaps not been like, oh, that's significant because it's just sort of like blended into the rest of what she's saying. But then talking about the timeline again, and then there was also this little mention of the hemorrhage under the scalp and what that might mean, which again, I was like, huh, what's that about? I'm not, but that it was eight to 10 hours to fix lividity. She disappeared to 7.30 burial doesn't make sense at all because she's saying what Jan was saying it was 10.30 to 2.30 a.m. is when 
the lividity would have been fixed, which I know we've talked about it before, but again, that's doesn't match at all with the story that Jay gave. Right. What I come away from this all, again, is just like where this goes from here, who knows? But looking at this now, it's like I can't imagine how a new trial would find him guilty right. based on the amount of additional work that they've done and the experts they've talked to in this case. Well, this is another thing, the documentary, because they don't signpost it well. Just like I said before, I think the car is a red herring. I think the burial in Leakin Park is a red herring. His lividity becomes fixed, right, Kevin? It does. When does it become fixed? Uh, after, is it eight hours? Eight to 10 hours. Yes. Eight, eight to 12 hours. And then you can move down. a body around. You can bury it a week later or whatever. But lividity is fixed in that position, right? Right. Don't forget when rigor mortis is, is fixed Correct. too. Correct. So it's not like you could just, it's a floppy body that you could start arranging yeah. like so a doll. So the idea that Hay was even buried on that day, as far as I'm concerned, like it's all a red herring. It doesn't matter. Like she probably wasn't. There was, we know there was a snowstorm that day. Yeah. That piece of physical evidence just says that the to you that's been one of the most the significant things this it whole just, time. It just, it just shatters the state's theory of the case. Toby, it do doesn't you... exonerate it not. I right. will say that. It shatters the state's theory of that crime. But when you real so the fact that the state's case then has been used as the basis for Adnan's appeal being denied, because that was the basis of that Court of Appeals of Maryland denial, was this timeline, the state's theory, this that the state's theory is Whatever you think about Anand Syed, this documentary shows it's total fucking bullshit. They made everything try to fit the facts they had to right. the other way around. Right. But Toby, do you agree with me that even with this lividity thing, they bring in this incredibly credible Patricia Cornwell character level M.E. who's like a national expert who's able to like do like a real analysis and say like, oh, this is just what it shows like the documentary doesn't underline it, right? They don't do a good job of that. Yeah, the documentary doesn't do a good job of a lot of things. Mm. But I mean, I think that's one of the frustrating things for me. Yeah, I mean, there's just no tying together of anything. So I kind of feel like there's this not very well delineated succession of sort of moments where it's like, well, you know, this clearly isn't the way they said it was. And let's go on to the next thing. I don't know how much it's a red herring as much as like, it's another reason why you've got to start again, you know, and be like, okay, so if the thing was, is that she was murdered and then her body was someplace for a while and then they moved it and then they placed it, they didn't even really bury, you know, they kind of buried her in Lincoln Park. So you just got to, it's like a whole different narrative all of a sudden, you know, I don't even know where you start at this point. The fact is that this has been gone over so much and the people who have sort of peripheral parts to play in it have been questioned about it and have thought about it and all these things that their memories, you know, just can't really be trusted anymore. Right. That anything that they recall at this late date is probably not going to be valid. It seems to me the more and more you pick away at the prosecution case, the further you get from being able to come up with a, uh, a separate resolution because it gets thrown wide open. That's right. That's the whole point is that it was never thrown wide open to begin with because the people that are the primary witnesses in the case, Jay, Jen, Krista, were only there because this is the road the cops went down. Meanwhile, so we know that, you know, Heyman Lee, we now know because the medical evidence shows the state's case is out. 
Yeah. So let's just throw out. I mean, I'm just going to say it. Let's throw out the car. Let's throw out Jen's story about what happened on that day because it didn't. It just didn't. Let's throw out uh, the whole idea that Adnan put Hayes' body in the trunk and like drove it around. Let's just throw it out because it's just not true. Then what basically this next scene with the PIs do is this is where it does, again, differ from Making a Murderer Season 2. They're not trying to say, like, this person did it and this person did it. They're just saying, like, here's what we would do if we were looking at this anew. It's been three years we've been looking at this. And Heyman Lee has these marks on her body, these double diamond pattern marks that were fixed in the lividity, which means when she was lying on her stomach resting somewhere for 8 to 10 hours, there was something pushing up against her shoulder. And they come up with a plausible theory that those very distinctive marks could have been made by this tool called a concrete shoe. But the reason this is interesting is that we know that Alonzo Sellers worked in concrete for years and years and years and years. We have been trying to talk to Alonzo. Luke and I knocked on his door. We wanted to simply say, what do you remember about this case? He refused to talk to us. I hadn't realized how close he lives to Woodlawn. It's a five-minute walk. That's the school. The five-minute walk thing, I mean, I know this isn't like, I mean, the, the difference here is this isn't the same approach that we see in Making a Murderer. We see Kathleen Zellner like, well, this is what could have happened, and that's what could have happened, where it's like in your face, all these other theories. But I think the fact that we now know Mr. S's name, we know that he lives five minutes away from the school. I just always felt like there was more to the way that he just happened to come walking along, whether he was involved or witnessed something, who knows? But that's definitely... It raised my, I was like, ooh, my spidey senses went up there. And then in the next scene, you know, we have the mysterious SH. Yes. That used to work with Don at Lens Crafters. Yes. I flashed back to a conversation that myself, him, and another co-worker at Lens Crafters had during the smoke break when he told us originally that she was missing. I remember as clear as day, like his hands had scratch marks and bandages going around. Up towards his breast, on the scratches were more down towards his nose. He just said that it was something from working on his car or something. Scratches and bandages on his hands? I was like, what? Oh, my God. Like, who knows? It could be nothing. But that combined with the whole um, phantom shift scenario that they fleshed out there about Don not actually being working because there's no way that he would have been working at the same time as the other guy because they were never on together. Yeah. I don't know. There was a lot of... But again, it just... It wasn't... It just wasn't in my face as much without like Kathleen Zellner and her driver driving around telling me what I was supposed to think about the information. Well, I just, you know, I've got like more than a small issue with that in that I I think they do, regardless of how in your face you think it is, they do cast suspicion on both those guys. And even if one of them did it, the other didn't. So there's no question that somebody who's out there right now is is suddenly being associated with this murder. So at a minimum, they, they're 50% wrong. Yeah. I mean, so there, there, there's point. at least one person who's being, you know, not exactly implicated, but like hinted at. And that definitely one of them is it has nothing to do with it and, and possibly both. To me, that seems a little weird. Uh, like I would not be comfortable putting out something where I knew that somebody who definitely had nothing to do with it was going to be associated with the murder and people would be suspicious of that person. Hmm. I had a really hard time with that. This is the flaw of the documentary, right? 
we only saw what they saw. They had the amount of time they had. Mm-hmm. And you know how we've complained with Netflix stuff that it's too long? Yeah. I feel like this is too short. Short. Yeah. Because I know that there's a reason why they included stuff they included and didn't include stuff they didn't include. I just know there is. And we can say, like, is is Mr. S being too scrutinized, Alonzo Sellers? Here's the bottom line, though, and this is what it comes down to for me. The police didn't look into him overly. Sarah Koenig treated him with tinterhooks. She gave him a pseudonym on her podcast, even though... Like he's been accused of sex crimes and like has been isn't like has a, a record mm-hmm. of streaking and exposing himself. And you can say, well, that's not the same as attacking and rape. But we like it's a, I mean, isn't it enough to sort of say he's also, by the way, the person who, quote, found the body, which we know isn't true the way he says he found it. The fact that he wasn't more in the frame to begin with, it's a valid point. It's valid. Whether or not the concrete thing is, I don't know. I just think it's valid. You don't know he didn't find the body that way. It is su- his story is super sketchy. But if he's already a convicted sex offender, isn't he in the system or they didn't take his DNA? To me, and, I, and I'm not like picking a fight with your opinion, but to me on the filmmaker's part, that's bullshit. Yeah. If there's a reason why you're like naming both of these men and saying there's a chance that they're the perpetrator... And what you show is this kind of innuendo. If you got more, you should put it or just or just don't go there. Because I, again, they don't make a very compelling case for either one of them. Mm. Like if you wanted to do a thing about either one of those guys has been unfairly put into this picture, I'm sure you could make a very compelling documentary about how, you know, people are being unfair if they think that they did it. Totally. And especially the whole thing is that they can't both have done it. Right. So you're definitely pointing the figure at somebody who's completely innocent. I find that difficult. And I think if they had more that they were going on, like they should have put it in there or just kept the whole thing out. This was a filmmaker's choice. And Toby, I agree with you. I wouldn't necessarily made the same choice to put those two same conclusions in, but they did. But then how do you do documentaries Exactly. Like this? Exactly. Well, there's the whole thing. You can either do them making a murderer version where you put everybody in the frame and dissect everything, or you can just say, here's the cops should have looked at. It's a very, this is not dissimilar to what Laura Berg did with the West Memphis Three, where she basically was like, these kids got convicted, but it could have been these other dudes. And we didn't have that same argument with documentaries like that. We're having that with this one because I think we are also influenced by our previous conversations. It's the only way to sort of like, publicly and culturally exonerate Adnan is to quote unquote find the real killer. Correct. So well, you can, we're gonna get you there. can prove that he got you know he got an unfair trial. Yes. And you can even prove that he wasn't the guy. Yes. But until you say this was the guy or this well, that's was the, the girl. Problem. Yeah. That's the problem here is that the lack of a smoking gun. So let's go there right now. All right. So two big things that happen, two big pieces of news they get. One And not everyone might think this is a big piece of news, but I'm here to tell you this is a big piece of news, is that Justin Brown, Adnan Syed's attorney, during this whole appeals process that we were following, was actively negotiating with the attorney general of the state of Maryland, not with Thiru Vignaraja, with the attorney general of the state of Maryland, when both the attorney general... And Justin believed, because the appeals were going so well, there would be a new trial. 
the state of Maryland knew they didn't have a lot of evidence, so they offered it not a plea. Their plea, let's be real, kind of sucked. Plead guilty, spent four more years in prison. It was an opening gambit. But that shows, Kevin, that the state knows that their case is not good. It certainly shows that they don't have 100% confidence that they could win again. It certainly shows they don't want to go back to another trial. Sort of. Well, I don't think it's that unusual because, I, you know, having worked on criminal cases, you know, part of the process, even in cases like this, is that they're always, I think, in good faith, trying to come up with some sort of resolution to end the case if they can, if both sides can. So so I'm not surprised that they were going back and forth like, well, here's an offer that we'll give you. Well, we're not going to take your offer. Well, here's, you know, that that didn't surprise me as much. I mean, and that wouldn't have been public, uh, you know, because that that's all stuff that's happening, you know, when they're having their case status conferences with the judge or when they're checking in to see how things are going. So I wasn't as surprised by that as I was the other information. All right, so the other information is that during this Back and forth with the state. We don't 100% know the machinations, but we do know that the state did ultimately test the DNA in the case, which they didn't do for the first set of trials, which the defense has never done, and that Adnan's DNA doesn't explicitly show up in the car, in any of the other evidence, and that some of the DNA that was tested, I think namely the rope, pulled up a full profile that matched someone but not Adon, not Hay. Uh, we know that oh, the other DNA did not match Hay either, whether or not it was full pro- profiles or not, whatever. Nothing matched Hay. Uh, Adnan is basically excluded from the DNA matching profile, and whoever it does match is not in the system. And the documentary explains that that's because the person has never been charged with a crime that would require, like, a DNA swab. And they say... You know, Don might fit that category, Mr. Ash fit that category, but I think we're sort of left with the sort of it could be anyone, which I think to a lot of people who are looking for a smoking gun, you can say with like reasonable certainty that like if Adnan had murdered Hay, his DNA would be somewhere on her body, uh, on a rope. Uh, on something in her yeah, car. See, and they just like really don't underline it that. It would be somewhere. Manual yeah. strangulation, you would think his DNA would be somewhere. His DNA is not somewhere. And you not would... only that, and Jay's is not. Yes. Which is also super interesting. But you would think. and But they, but they also have a third person. Right. right? They have DNA person. from third person. See, and when they just kind of throw it out there very kind of casually, like we're all supposed to pick up on it. Maybe we are. Maybe I'm just dumb. But I feel yeah. like as a storyteller, I mean, it's like, well, can you put it in bold font? Where's Colin us? Miller to tell this? us what this means? <laughs> it just went by a little too fast yes. without any sort of like... Whoa. And then they went on to the next thing. I think that that's a big deal. Now, maybe it's not completely exculpatory or whatever. It's exculpatory enough that the state didn't think they had a good case. Right. Okay. But remember, these documentarians aren't defense investigators. Their goal is not to get not a new trial. It's to tell this documentary. Correct. And if they can advance the story by doing some legwork themselves, fine. They go through all this trouble to do it, and it's like, it, it goes by so subtly, we don't even realize that we just heard something big. Am Kevin, I wrong, folks? No, because Rebecca called me yes. and was like, how did you miss that? And I'm like, um, I didn't understand. It's very easily, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I thought I thought they said they hadn't tested it, but maybe they had tested some of it, but I wasn't totally sure. And then Krista was back. So I, I'm not really sure what just happened. Well, my, my takeaway was basically that 
through some unconventional process. And I'm sure we'll find out more about this this coming week with undisclosed episodes or whatever. Through some unconventional process, Justin Brown was working with the state in these negotiations and the state tested the DNA. It wasn't just sort of like a Kathleen Zellner-esque, like, give me that DNA, I'm going to put it in a bag and take it to my own lab. It was not that. (laughs) It was the state was part of this process, right? Yeah. And so to me, the big news is this is the takeaway that if nothing else, I hope our listeners take away before the Court of Appeals of Maryland came down with that surprise ruling that I think even surprised officials in Maryland. The state was in a position where they had tested DNA in this case and Adnan's DNA was not present, like in the places where you thought it might be where in a trial you'd be able to convict him. So this is going on when they believe they have a new trial that's going to happen, right? The state knows Jay's story is out. The state knows that, like, a lot of the aspects of this case are bullshit. And they're negotiating with Justin. And I think the expectation is there's going to be a new trial. And the state is like, well, fuck, we don't actually have anything. And then this court ruling comes down where... It makes the new trial not happen. To me, that is the takeaway. I don't think the documentary landed the plane on that, but that's what I took from it. Can we? Oh, my God. Don't you want to just see this DNA from the rope put in the Ancestry DNA database so we can find out who this person is? You mean the 100,000 people they're related to? You mean the GEDmatch database and build the family tree and figure out. Yes. No, I agree. Or the the partial profile. It's a whole thing. I want to know. Well, I just kind of feel like a little bit like I did at the end of Serial, like you, you just had that, that that summary, but I don't actually have any freaking clue what the prosecution thinks. We can kind of guess based on what we've seen from what I think is like clearly a pro-defense documentary, but we really don't, we don't have any clue what, what they think the strengths of their case is. We, we've just seen one side of this argument and I think it's a compelling side, but I didn't learn anything about what the prosecution thinks about anything. What I took away from it was that if the state attorney general is looking at his people and they keep losing these appeals and he keeps looking at the star wit, like, the, OK, they're on track to have a new trial and the star witness is, you know, been all over contradicting himself. I, as the attorney general, would turn to my homicide chief and be like, OK, well, what do we know about this case? We have DNA that's never been tested. Well, guys, why don't we just quickly test that? I'm just on the queue change. What the fuck? Yeah. You know, I, I think I would at some point somebody's got to start looking a step ahead and go, all right, well, exactly yeah. how are now? Do they do that and think that they're super strong and they're right? Yeah, well, okay, we're we're cool. I I don't know, but I think it's telling that they at least went to that if they're they if would they're not at have least made an offer. Engage, right, and it sounds like they yeah. came to Justin. I don't know. It, that's how it sounded. They would not have they, made an offer. Yeah. If they are in those negotiations and an offer was made, you cannot say they're a hundred percent confident. Maybe they're ninety five percent confident, and this is ex- an expedient way to to wrap the whole thing up. But th- that's a surprise. I don't think Brian Frosch thought that the Court of Appeals of Maryland was going to come down with a decision it did. I mean, it's, it's interesting to find out where they would be if, Correct. They, if the, yeah, if that hadn't happened. And who knows? I think that Justin is very kind saying that Brian Frosch wasn't thinking about his reelection prospects when he set that number of four years that <laughs> would have to serve. Anyway, that's where we are now. And that is where this ends. And 
I think we all agree the documentary did not exactly tie it up in a bow for us. So why don't we do what we do rather than give episode four a letter grade? Let's just, because we've been waiting for this the whole time, give this entire series, The Case Against Adnan Syed, our thumbs up or thumbs down review and briefly explain why. I know it's a lot of pressure, but I'm going to start with you, Toby Ball. I'm going to Toby Ah. first this time, (laughs) changing it up. Go ahead, Toby. All right. So I'm going to start by saying I, I give it a C plus. What about the thumbs up or thumbs down, Toby? That's literally not what I asked for. <laughs> I wasn't paying any attention to you. Because um, usually, usually I get to listen to Laura first and then I, I can play off her. Um, thumbs up or thumbs down? I think I give it a thumbs up because, and, and purely because of this, is because I think they, as we've talked about, have a lot of compelling stuff that I think it's super hard to watch this and come away feeling that, Idnan is clearly guilty, you know, and I think it's it's pretty easy to come away and say Idnan is is clearly innocent. And I think if you're not willing to make that leap, you know, the reasonable doubt hurdle is cleared with ease. So I, I think as far as that goes, like, yeah. And I, I think the unfortunate thing about this is I think they did a lot of work and they they've gotten a lot of good, compelling stuff. But it's just it's just not a very good documentary series. And when uh, you brought up the the whole uh, West Memphis Three thing, even though they didn't have like an alternative theory of the crime, there was a theory of what was going on that was very clear. Right? Is you you came away being like, okay, this is how this happened. You had these outcasts. You had this very religious community. You had these quacks acting like they were experts. There was all these things kind of came together to convict unjustly convict these three people. And there just wasn't anything like that. There wasn't anything unifying in this. It was just like, well, there's this and there's this and there's this and there's this. So this is a lot of words to say, you know, if you're interested in the case, I would give it a thumbs up. If you haven't listened to serial or undisclosed or anything else like that, I think it's just going to seem kind of bewildering and one thing after another. And at the end you're going to be like, well, yeah, I guess I guess that guy got railroaded, but mm. as a standalone, it 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 wasn't very impressive. I don't think. Well, uh, before I go to Laura, I will say I have identified a crime writers on listener who is not plugged into this case, who only watches documentary, and I will be talking to her for the crime writers on after show, which will be dropping right as the show drops. So if you want to like join our Patreon, you can check that out because I have been curious about just what you said, Toby, like what would somebody who had maybe just listened to Serial or maybe who wasn't exposed to what do they think? Like, I don't think it's possible for any of us to know that. So Laura, where are you on this? Are you a thumbs up or thumbs down overall for the case against Adnan Syed on HBO? I'm a thumbs up and, you know, it wasn't perfect, but I'm going to say, you know, we got to see Adnan's family, which we hadn't seen. We got to see Rabia. We got to see Mr. Beans. We got to see people that we had heard about that we maybe hadn't seen before. Kathy, not Kathy. Now we know her name. Uh, Jen, I won't want to tangle with her. I'll say that again. But then, you know, more information about Mr. S and Don. I mean, they went to a lot of work to find all the people involved in this case. 
at the end, I definitely didn't feel like I came away and we've talked about this with the feeling of like, oh, yeah, that like I knew what the big revelations were, but I didn't necessarily I had to kind of think about it. And I think if there was maybe a little bit more of an advocacy stance in terms of like posting like at the end or somehow at the end of the whole thing, like, OK, we have X, Y and Z to kind of like leave you with a little bit more of an impact when it ended aside from just the like what happened at the end that would have bumped it up more. But I I liked seeing everybody in person. All right. Well, I'm going to give it a thumbs up because I think it was a, just a good true crime documentary. Forget serial, forget undisclosed, forget whatever. I think it was good. I do think now getting back into my serial and undisclosed world, the documentary would have benefited tremendously from the addition of one person. Who am I going to say, Kevin? Colin. Legal Siri. Legal Siri. Yes. Because Colin, like if he had just been cast as the character who just in an evidentiary sense, because by the way, and this is like, I think a misunderstood fact about Colin Miller. Colin Miller is not a family member of Adnan Syed's or a friend of Adnan Syed's. He is literally an evidence professor who's just like, this evidence is bullshit. Like, that's who he is. Mm-hmm. And I think that when they dismantle in episode three, the Krista Vinson corroboration about the day and the Jen corroboration and about the cell phone stuff and whatever, that is the missing piece here. Because I think this documentary is great. I give it a thumbs up. But I also argued with two people who know a whole lot about this case, about what we actually saw, because what was missing was Colin Miller sitting there telling us, all right, so they tested the DNA and here's what it means. All right, so Krista Vinson says it was the wrong day and here's what it means. I believe if they had that, many more people would walk away from the saying, Adnan Syed did not commit this crime and the state is bullshit for continuing to like protest these appeals. That's what's missing. So I'm giving it a thumbs up, but that is for me the missing ingredient. What I think is missing is a closing argument. Mm. And because there were a lot of great things that came out of this, but- they don't stick the landing. Mm. So I'm still a thumbs up. I think that the investigation part itself came up with a lot of good stuff. But I think sort of on the narrative side of it, that it lost its way and didn't really signpost for the viewer what was important. And I think, yeah, sort of a closing argument that sums up everything that we know. They, they tried to do a little bit of it in the scene with Justin and the two detectives. To bring everything back around from, you know, both Krista and Jennifer and their revelation about Wednesday the 13th and uh, the DNA and the lividity evidence and, of course, to bring back the cell tower stuff and the police, the history of uh, police misconduct. misconduct by Detective Ritz. <sighs> You're right. You, you know, there's just a lot there that was sort of left to, like, you have to go back. If you could have just put that all on a single platter at the end... That, I think, would have you know made a, a stronger case. The documentary itself is flawed. The investigation is really compelling. So you thumbs up or thumbs down? No, I said I'm a thumbs up. Okay. I'm a thumbs up. Just we check. know we got the first three episodes, and the fourth episode, we were told, was still being put together. Yeah. And we assumed that that was partly because the court just handed them a new ending. Correct. But it still seems like that perhaps that if they had more time to think about all the stuff that was there and put it in a different form that it might have been more complete it just it it, in the end it's just sad knowing what we see between the plea negotiations and the state of the evidence that Anand Syed is going to bed tonight again in prison
I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and Sirius XM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and Sirius XM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the week. week. They say good fences make for good neighbors. Or do they? California resident Jason Windus built a fence that his neighbor wasn't thrilled about. It was six feet tall and designed to keep his dogs contained. But then... Windus received a notice from the city about a complaint his neighbor lodged about the fence being too tall. So, what did Windus do? Well, it was clear to him, at least, that his neighbor just really wanted him to have a shorter fence so he could have a good, clear look into Windus's backyard. Eh, creeper. So, to give him something to look at, he decided to put on a little show. A bunch of naked mannequins having a garden party. <laughs> <laughs> According to KCRA-TV, four of the fashion dummies are seated in wicker chairs around a matching table. Another is standing with its arms over its head and shamrocks over its breasts. No word on whether Windus's neighbor is enjoying the mannequin show or has withdrawn his complaint to the city. So my question for you, panel, is, Laura Bricker, I will start with you. What steps have you taken to combat a nosy neighbor? I, I did have a really bad nosy neighbor once, and I used to go out when he came spying on me and um, get my camera out like I was taking pictures of him. Mm. You know what this reminds me of is one of the greatest um, small town nosy neighbor neighbor feud stories I covered when I was a brand new reporter. There was an ongoing fight, and one of the neighbors actually painted their house with polka dots hmm. to piss what? off the other neighbor next door. Yes, pink polka dots in the historic district. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Toby? What steps have you taken to discourage a nosy neighbor? Do you want to hear a messed up story? Yeah, yeah. of course we do. That's why we're here. Because I didn't have to take any steps because the FBI took steps. <gasps> what? When we were living in D.C. I stop because I'm not going to top this. I'm just going to say I let him look. Go, Toby. (laughs) Okay. When we were living in D.C., there was a a guy uh, from like Uzbekistan who lived in the basement of this house that I was running with my girlfriend, now wife. And then this other guy, he was like, I guess, a nice enough guy. Like I, I drove him to get a pick up a TV and stuff. And he would come up and do his laundry and stuff. But uh, so he was down there for a while. And then. He left and we started getting 
these letters, like basically from collection agencies because he'd been like renting cars and stuff and, and then not paying them. The day we were moving out and we were like taking all this, all these trash bags out to the sort of alley where the trash was kept. One of our neighbors came over and said, did you have like a Russian guy living in your basement? And we we're like, well, like kind of, I guess he's from Uzbekistan. She said, well, the FBI came to my husband's office to talk about him because he had apparently tapped into their phone line what? and was making calls all over the country. Oh, my. And, and this is before, you know, not a lot, this is like 1997 or something. But he was being investigated for being in Al-Qaeda. Wow. And for being involved what? in uh, oh in the original the World Trade Center bombing where they had the, the van that blew itself up by accident when it went over a speed bump, I think. You did your laundry with a terrorist? Wow. Well, he did his laundry with me. But yeah, so anyway, that's my nosy neighbor story. Wow. wow. Here I was thinking that like my hiding my dog's poop underneath some snowbanks <laughs> so she wouldn't realize that my dog's been pooping in her little yard <laughs> was enough. But yeah, no. it's not good enough. No. All right. Well, we can't top that. So, Laura Bricker, before we wrap it up, do we have a cat of the week this week? So this is another one from the Brichter Scale um, Super Secret Facebook group. Amy Schmeisler has three orange boy cats. Are you kidding me? Oh, my God. It made me so excited. And she sent me a picture. So she has Homer. He's the original one, far right. And he has sort of a um, sad look upon his face. Mm. Last year, Homer lost his brother Wally to a brain tumor. And Amy got a dog. Two terrible injustices that were compounded by the arrival of Nikki and Pudge, the new yellow kittens. Wow. So poor 11-year-old Homer, not super happy with the um, rambunctious kittens, but oh my God, they're adorable. So orange cats rule. Once again, we have a cornucopia of cats of the week this week. Laura <laughs> yeah. Bricker, people want to reach out to you and pitch their pets to be cat of the week next week. How can they find you online? At Laura Bricker on Twitter. And Toby Ball, people want to reach out to you and talk to you about, I don't know, the problems with the case against Adnan Syed or UFOs and abductions in New Hampshire. How can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn, people want to reach out to you and, I don't know, give you a kiss in the cheek. How can they find you? Yeah, kiss me at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow the show on Twitter or Instagram, we are at Crime Writers On. Or you can follow me at either place, Twitter or Instagram, at Reb Lavoie. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter and our Patreon. Links for both are at CrimeWritersOn.com or you can go to Patreon.com slash Partners of Crime Media and listen to our Crime Writers On after show right now and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast and Laura Bricker's super freaking charming Exeter rage walking thing that we <laughs> doesn't really have a name I would recommend signing up for the $6 level. Just saying. Our theme song was performed by the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. This podcast was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our basement where we never leave a scrap of DNA untested. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. I'm going to leave you guys till you do okay. your thing because I have to get some to eat before my 1.30 thing. Okay. Uh, let me just uh, <coughs> rearrange here so I don't... And where's Jason? He's, uh, he's in the bathroom. He's got to pee. Oh. <laughs> oh, wait. Don't we, don't we want you in the... Can't you be in this for just a half, quick half want? second?
I can do whatever you guys want. You can even jump ahead to the part where you introduce Rebecca. No, you can, can just you can do it in order if you want. It's okay. totally fine. I don't, I'm not in a rush. Um, so I just look, didn't want you to feel like you had to include <clears throat> Yeah, no, we're happy to do it. Um, so hey there, this is an, this is a quick note to tell you we're going on tour. We're going to be... You're just reading through your script, right? You're not like recording right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, this is how I do it. Worst Rebecca's like, promo Rebecca's ever. like a little more gusto. <laughs> I liked it better when you had to no, pee, no. Jason. This is my technique. <laughs> so many on NAFOP. Yeah. <laughs> Can I please have that piece of audio? Um, damn it. Crime media. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.